The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This is for you, Daddy. Took my love and I took it down. Mm, that's the gorgeous voice of Stevie Nicks, of course, from Fleetwood Mac. Her ex-husband, Lindsay Buckingham, on the guitar. The song is called Landslide, and I found it on a Christmas list in Spotify. You know, one of those best Christmas songs of 2019 kind of lists. I'm a sucker for Christmas, a total sucker. Even when the world is going to hell. I don't mind sappy. I kind of like it. But I also like sad. Melancholy. You guys know this about me. How I go both ways. Past Christmas songs I featured include Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time. Which a lot of people hate. As treacle. Critics and cynics hate that song, but it's not treacle for me. Reminds me of being 11 years old and excited about snow days and big piles of packages at my grandparents' house. And that excitement and enthusiasm has stayed with me. I still feel it when I'm on the way to one of my son's basketball games. And it was easy to feel it when my kids were little and we could all look forward to Santa and presents and everything else. But I've matured and I have... The melancholy side, too, which is why I like Frank Sinatra's I'll Be Home for Christmas. I've played all of these for you before. You know my faves. I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan. Plan on me, if only in my dreams. What a sad song. And here comes Ella to sing another sad song. At least sad in my listening of it. Sounds sad to my ears. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year all our troubles will be out of sight. All our troubles will be out of sight next year. They will. That longing in her voice. It shows all sides of me, these songs, and I'm not special. Who am I kidding? Shows all sides of a grown-up. How we enjoy being young and we enjoy being old. It's fun to be a kid. It's fun to be a parent. I'm sure it's fun to be a grandparent, and I hope someday I get the chance. But it's also hard to be a kid sometimes. And it's hard to grow up and be an adult a lot of the time. You start dealing with grief and loss and disease, money and work and frustration. The world doesn't do what you want it to do. I want us to stop cooking the atmosphere. Others might have different priorities. I want leaders who don't lie. I want a world based on love for one another rather than hate. I don't know if I'll get that world. I might get pockets of it, 
It might be that I never get to experience a world like that in my lifetime, that I'll only see videos that remind me that people are good, that there are little windows of hope and optimism that flash in front of me. Will that be enough? The question will remain whether it's enough to stir some life into my cold, dead, withered heart. The heart that used to go, ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. And when it was excited, it would go, pa 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 And now it just goes, Here we go. <laughs> we do this every year, don't we? I read a note to myself. Talk about excitement of being young at Christmas. That's my script. That's my note to myself. And here's the 200th episode, which I've been talking about for months, building it up like it's going to be some grand celebration. And then I get on a roll and I end up with a decrepit heart. Hanging in a chamber of horrors. Merry Christmas, everyone. Jack Wilson style. But you're not here for shoots and giggles, are you? Not here for puffery, not here for pan gloss. You're here for the truth. Because you came for literature, and literature goes deep. Literature delights and diverts, but it also devastates and destroys. Literature, if it's any good at all, if it's worth our time at all, won't shrink from the truth. That's why I love it. And I can say the same thing about art. All art. We're not just on a little escapist journey here, not looking for a piece of candy to suck on for an hour. We're looking for meat and potatoes, for protein, for substance, for sustenance. And so it is with Christmas music. I like the cotton candy, but I also like the heart-rending melodies. I like Paul having his wonderful Christmas time, and I also like John's. So this is Christmas. So this is Christmas. Has anyone ever gotten more mileage out of something that simple as the word so? Maybe it's Paul getting his mileage out of the word simply. Look at the difference between these two geniuses. Remember that both of them lost their mother in their teens, and they both took different paths. Paul said, I won't let this get me down. I have to stay positive to make sure I survive, keep my head above water. Keep paddling as hard as I can so I can breathe. And so he's the artist looking up, looking ahead, smiling as much as he can, sometimes overdoing it, maybe, sure, but it's an approach. It's a valid choice. And he says, simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Don't think too hard, people. Keep it simple. Simply having. We don't have to complicate things. We can simply have. A wonderful Christmas time. And John's Christmas song doesn't say, It's Christmas time. It's So This Is Christmas. So this is Christmas, and what have you done? So this. Here we are, the man standing apart, looking around, seeing truth. His mother died, and he said, All right, this sucks. This is pain. What else do you have for me, life? What else can you throw at me, world? God? Anyone listening? Anything else? Oh, great, my best friend. He dies too. My uncle, my father is gone, abandoned me. Anything else? 
You turned me into a figure adored by fans. I'm in a world of everyone screaming, wanting to hear me, wanting to see and touch me, wanting to be near me, wanting to be me, wanting me. And nobody gives me back my dead. My uncle, my best friend, my mother. Nobody fills those holes. And I see holes in the world, too. I see war and pain and hunger and greed. And I see lies and hypocrisy. And I see everyone ringing bells and drinking nog and putting up lights and talking about the Christmas spirit. And there's some good there, but it looks like an awful lot of the same old stuff, given a little window dressing. Nobody's changing. They're almost using this holiday as an excuse not to change. Why should we help the poor? Why should we stop the war? Why should we be better when we can tell ourselves that we are better because it's the holidays and we have quote-unquote Christmas spirit, which is like drawing a happy face on a corpse and saying, See? See? All better now. And John Lennon says, This? This is your holiday? This is in honor of the Savior who died for us, who preached a message of kindness and mercy, who was against greed, against violence. And we have this little holiday for him, even as nothing in this greedy and violent world changes. This is Christmas, I see. I see. I see. So this is Christmas. Great. Congratulations, people. Beauty's out there with his bouncy tune telling you to simply enjoy it. Have a wonderful Christmas time, everyone. Well, truth is here to say, you're not fooling him. So this is Christmas And what have you done Another year over And you won't just be gone I, Jack Wilson, am here to say I love them both. Do I contradict myself? Said Whitman, well, very well. Then I contradict myself because I contain multitudes. Whitman would have been just like me. Love Paul, love John too. We don't have to pick. Adults live with a swirl of emotions inside us. And not just adults, humans. And that brings me back to Stevie Nicks. Took my love and I took it down. What was this song, Landslide, doing on a Christmas 2019 playlist? Right there with Feliz Navidad and Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree and Frosty the Snowman. Sad songs I get. Beautiful, aching songs I get. Christmas has that edge when we stop to really look at it. But Landslide? I was stumped. Then it hit me, of course. The snow-covered hills, which is a wintry landscape, and winter is fused together with Christmas for us. Snow makes us think of Christmas, and vice versa. I missed it because I always thought of the snow-covered hills as a metaphor for cocaine, which I think Stevie has actually said. So my mind just jumps straight to that. But we can stick to the imagery, snow-covered hills. It's such a beautiful song. Why not listen to it at Christmas? We can enjoy it year-round. That's fine with me. Well, I've been afraid of changing Cause 
This is actually the perfect song for this episode, too, because we are talking about Thomas Mann's classic novel, The Magic Mountain, which, as many of you know, is our old friend Mike Palindrome's favorite novel of all time, or close to it. I've put my toe in the water before, but I've finally gone all in on this book, finally gone under enough to wet my hair. It is fantastic. It's really a great book. And there's a chapter called Snow that Mike and I discuss. Oh, yes. He'll be here to help us talk about it. You didn't think we'd do this without him, did you? We don't hitch up the reindeer without bringing in Rudolph to light the way. And this song goes perfectly well with this book. The snow. Oh, my God. There's a beautiful and strange chapter in this book called Snow that blew me away. What a fantastic piece of writing. You feel the snow-covered hills. Feel a soul's reflection in the snow-covered hills in that chapter. Just as you do in the song. And this lyric, which always seems so beautiful to me. I've been afraid of changing because I've built my life around you. It's a beautiful description of a romance and an individual within a romance in a relationship. But it's also separate from relationships for me. I've been afraid of changing. Isn't that all of us? Aren't we all afraid of changing for one reason or another? Because change is hard. And it's scary. And we know enough about the world to know that a lot of the time, changes make things worse. So we cling to the present, even if it's not good. We're not always honest with ourselves. We adapt. We tell ourselves things are fine. We smile through the pain. And we don't change. And we don't get better. We don't dream. Hans Kastorp could be our model of that, the mediocrity who goes up a mountain to get better and gets stuck there, afraid to come down, afraid to leave the sanatorium, along with all his fellow residents, all of them there to get better, all of them afraid to leave. We declare ourselves sick, and yet we're afraid to get better. We know what the problems are, the diseases are diagnosed, and yet we don't take the medicine. Or that's not quite it. We take the medicine. We just never stop taking it. We don't say, hang on. It's time to return to life. It's time to embrace life and change too. Because that's part of life. We can dream. We can do all the things we're too timid to do. A landslide may be coming to take us down. But that's an opportunity. Maybe we shouldn't be clinging to the side of the mountain where we think it's safe. Maybe we need to ride the landslide to the bottom to embrace the new, the uncertain, the dream for the better. Maybe that's what Christmas should be about. Christmas with its pivot to the new year. So this is Christmas, John says, and what have you done? Another year over and a new one just begun. And maybe that's great in his world-weary voice. Maybe that's the doctor telling us what we've been avoiding. But how does that song end? War is over if you want it. War is over if you want it. Christmas, Christmas time, reflect on your life. Reflect on the rut you are stuck in. But don't be cynical only. Don't be afraid of change. Go out, make the change, get better. Allow yourself the freedom of mind to know that you are well. Read the magic mountain. It's all there. And then jump on the sled. Just like you're young again and free. And the world is curving out before you like untouched snow. 
and you are able to get to a magical place that has its own rewards. place that's new and better and it's one that you've never let yourself believe existed because you've never truly believed in the world before and it's been a long time since you ever truly believed in yourself and speaking of belief i believe this is the 200th episode of this fledgling little endeavor this little creature who not so long ago was lying in the crib howling and wailing mewling like a newborn Howling and wailing, crying out to an audience of, I think, ten or so on that first day. And now we are rolling towards our second million. The second million is easier than the first million, I'm finding. We're getting there quicker. Maybe we should recalibrate our goals. But in the meantime, we are very thankful for all of you who have joined us for the journey, including new patrons Daniel and Jason and Evan and Ivy. Ivy is so close to Holly, isn't it? That would have been nice for a Christmas episode. Holly and Joy and Noel and Jesus Christ. (laughs) Well, it's probably not going to happen. Though maybe a Jesus could jump in if he's out there listening. If he is, he can go to patreon.com slash literature, which is where you can sign up for a small small monthly donation or a large one, I guess. That's okay with me, too, because why wouldn't it be? I have bills to pay to keep this little podcast in blankets and swaddling clothes and there's historyofliterature.com slash slash shop (laughs) having trouble this morning for those of you looking to buy some gear or buy me a virtual coffee which I might take as a hot rum toddy in honor of the season a mug of wassail we can work that out together I'm sure that's patreon.com slash literature and historyofliterature.com slash shop Happy Christmas, people. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. And happy reading. I'm Jack Wilson. We'll have Thomas Mann and Mike Palindrome today on the History of Literature. grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Thomas Mann was born in Germany in 1875. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1929 and left Germany for good in 1933. This is what my book tells us, my edition of The Magic Mountain. That's all it says. He left Germany for good in 1933. Use your imagination as to why. Among his major novels are Budden Brooks, 1901, The Magic Mountain, 1924, and Dr. Faustus. 1948. He is equally well known for his short stories and essays. Thomas Mann died in 1955. Wow, that's the paragraph from my book. That's the biography of Thomas Mann. It tells us some facts, doesn't it? Leaves a lot out, too. Doesn't mention his older brother Heinrich, who was also a writer, or Adolf Hitler, whose rise to power is what caused Mann to flee Germany in 1933, never to return. And Hitler also became the object of his writing afterwards. His writing and his thinking. We'll have a little bit more about that later. That paragraph also doesn't tell us that Mann was born into a bourgeois family, the son of a senator and grain merchant, or that his mother was a Brazilian woman who moved to Germany when she was seven years old. Doesn't tell you that Mann's mother was Roman Catholic and his father was Lutheran, which is what young Thomas was baptized as. Doesn't tell you about his wife, who came from a wealthy Jewish family of secular industrialists, doesn't tell you that he wanted to be a journalist for a while and a composer, and that he studied history, economics, art history, and literature at universities in Munich. Those little sentences tell you some facts, but they leave out a lot of Thomas Mann, don't they? They don't tell you about the anti-Nazi speeches he recorded for the BBC in German, and which were broadcast to Germans. Hitler was a crude Philistine, he said, completely out of touch with European culture. We often excuse the people who got things wrong in their day. We sometimes forget to praise the people who get things right. We forget their courage. Mann struggled with his homosexuality, which is to be expected for someone growing up where he did and when he did. He put a lot of this struggle into his work, sometimes implicitly, sometimes with very little disguise, as in the masterwork Death in Venice, one of the great novellas of all time. The ideas of Friedrich Nietzsche run through Death in Venice. Mann was influenced by Nietzsche, and he was influenced by Dostoevsky. He was devoted to literature, a writer of ideas, a writer of naturalistic prose, a thinker who tried hard to capture the world and recreate it on the page. He had some interesting ideas about sickness and madness and artistry, and he wrote this about Dostoevsky, quote, After all and above all, it depends on who is diseased, who mad, who epileptic or paralytic, an average dull-witted man in whose illness any intellectual or cultural aspect is non-existent, or a Nietzsche or Dostoevsky. In their case, something comes out in illness that is more important and conductive to life and growth than any medical guaranteed health or sanity. In other words, Certain conquests made by the soul and the mind are impossible without disease, madness, crime of the spirit. End quote. 
And of Nietzsche, he says, quote, His personal feelings initiate him into those of the criminal. In general, all creative or originality, all artist nature in the broadest sense of the word, does the same. It was the French painter and sculptor Degas who said that an artist must approach his work in the spirit of the criminal about to commit a crime. End quote. An artist must approach his work in the spirit of a criminal about to commit a crime. What a wonderful phrase. A criminal assessing the world of rules and laws and deciding that they must be broken, filled with apprehension and anxiety, of determination, of excitement, all of which has to be tamped down in order to execute the deed with cold-blooded, rational determination. Knowing you are transgressing or about to transgress, but you are also about to get away with something. Maybe you're able to do it. You're able to sneak into the jewelry store after dark and slice into the glass cabinet and leave with the treasure. You're able to take an axe to the landlady's head. Sounds awful, I know. Maybe I should have stopped with the jewel thief, but we're in the world of metaphor here. And I'd rather have my artists free to walk up their metaphorical stairs with their metaphorical axe hidden behind their metaphorical backs. How breathtaking that is, how their heart is racing, how excited they are, and how much personal courage this takes. And we get to the end result, the new, the strange, the beautiful, the never-before-seen, the illegal. Literature so good and so powerful, it breaks the laws of nature. And the artist is our lawbreaker. That's a good goal. Not just for the morbid, say an Edgar Allan Poe or a Charles Baudelaire, but even for writers who live quiet lives and then spill all their blood on the page. You think Alice Munro, who's a fan of the Magic Mountain, by the way, you think Alice Munro doesn't walk up those stairs with a cheery smile on her face and an axe hidden behind her back, read her again. So, that's a little bit on Thomas Mann to whet the appetite. Mike Palindrome will be here to tell us more. That's coming up after this short break. Okay, joining me now is one of the History of Literature's magical and mountainous guests here to talk about the Magic Mountain, <laughs> President Palindrome. Welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So, Mike, Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann, or Thomas Mann, or Der Zauberberg by Thomas Mann. How do you, how do you pronounce it? <laughs> Let's just say, is this your favorite novel of all time? If if I was stuck on a in a desert or an island, yes, this is uh, you know like your Madame Bovary episode. This is the yep. book I could I could reread. This would be a good one actually Forever. for that. Yep, <laughs> this would be a really good choice. I don't know if it would be my choice, but it would be a good choice because it's 
it's readable in a sense, you know, you could say you'd take Ulysses or something, but then how frustrating would it be if there were things you couldn't really follow or didn't really understand? Uh, yeah. And you had nobody to talk to about it and no internet or whatever. But this one, everything is readable, but it just, it's got such sweep and so many highs and lows and, and so many different nooks and crannies. And you have been urging this book on me for decades. which you know there was a point where i thought maybe i'll never read it Uh and i've got this other friend and i have this this deal with (laughs) this deal with him where i was i guess i was out of high school and he was a high school friend really really close friend really good friend of mine and he went through this stretch where he was in love with the movie shawshank redemption and he mm-hmm. would call me up and he would say, have you watched Shawshank Redemption yet? And I'd say, no, not yet. And then he would call me back like an hour later. And he would say, oh, by the way, have you seen Shawshank yet? And I'd say, <laughs> well, it's only been an hour since we talked. So no. And then he would say, oh, you got to. you know." And he would he would be so offended and so wounded that I hadn't seen Shawshank that finally I just said to him, Look, I'm never going to see that movie, okay? Wow. Yeah. You could just stop asking. The answer is always going to be no. And so so basically for the last, you know, 30 years, I haven't watched the movie. And I feel uh I feel I love kind that of, movie. I know. It's a great movie. Everybody loves it. Everybody says it's great. I've sort of deprived <laughs> myself and I I I'm not doing it just to spite him or anything, but it was always one of those things where I think for a couple of years I just didn't bother to pick it off the shelf because I'd say, oh, yeah, this is I got so tired of having this recommended to me. And my conclusion from that story is sometimes great Mm -hmm. works of art just have to hit you at the right time when you're in the right frame of mind for it. You know, that's what this one Magic Mountain kind of did for me. I, I read it. It's it's been a long time since I've read a great book that mm-hmm. I hadn't read 20 years ago or longer, and I wasn't rereading. So this was, it was fun for me to have a book that I was reading for the first time. But where were you in life when you first discovered this 1924 novel? Well, I, I agree with you that um, the timing of reading certain books is crucial. So I had just graduated college. Mm-hmm. And I was given this by my girlfriend, who later became my wife. and. The way she described it to me was that it is like college because people don't have jobs Mm. and people are living in this incredible bubble. Yeah. And on the other side is the world below the real world. And eventually you have to enter it or not. Mm. Yeah, You know, I never thought of it as a metaphor for college, but that's totally right. I mean, college is the time where you just... You take road trips and you do... You eat in the cafeteria like over and over again. You eat yeah. in the cafeteria. You could just hang out. You could talk to people. You can you can do projects. I mean, I had a project once where every Friday afternoon I was going to go to the pub and then I was going to read Nabokov in the evening. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you just sort of have these... You really are outside of life in a way. You've got all this time and all this freedom. And most people are young and they're there, you know, you don't have a lot of obligations and it's a time to kind of build yourself. And that's kind of what's going on in this world of the sanatorium, I guess. 
Yeah. And, and then, you know, I've, I've read it four times and the other times I've read it once I was stuck at a job I hated and it became this escape. Mm-hmm. Um, and another time it, I just became a dad and it was just knowing that I could sit for hours and read this book while holding a baby. And again, yeah. it's, it's, it's a surprisingly effective escapist novel. I mean, right. I know people wouldn't think of it as, you know, a 750 page book as an escapist novel, but I think once you sink into his world, there's a lot to, you know, you can relate to just like, how much do we really, really want to work? I, I, the, the, just on page 20 in the opening where he's just like, it, the, uh, Thomas Mann's like Hans Castorp was a mediocre person. <laughs> I mean, I just love that. Like on page 20, you have this judgment of your main character that he's mediocre. (laughs) Right. And now enjoy this mediocrity for another 700 pages. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, I'm sorry. Did I just like, what? Like, like, this is like, it's not even like an anti-hero because he has no philosophy. He's just, you know, average. Yeah. So what else were you reading in those days? I mean, were you reading a lot of these novels of ideas and these big, thick books? Or was this, you know, was this different in the sense that you were reading short stories or Fitzgerald and Salinger and that kind of length? I kept a meticulous record. I think I mentioned on prior podcasts of everything I've read since I was 19. Mm -hmm. And so the year I first read Magic Mountain, I kind of had gotten deep into structuralism of all things. Um, so I was reading like Roland Barthes and, oh, yeah. but also reading, uh, I read the spoke Zarathustra by Nietzsche mm-hmm. and a lot of Gogol. I also read master and Margarita in that time period. And then just, you know, a lot of the, the big wigs that I'd never read, like Scarlet and the black mm-hmm. midnight's children. So it was a real, I think there was a sense that I was behind. Yeah. <laughs> that I was I was trying to catch up. Well, this um, fits right in with those uh, books. I mean, yeah. This was not really an anomaly on that list, but uh it's interesting that this is the one that rose to the top for you. Yeah, I mean, I read a lot of uh and, and funny, I I love Dead Souls, but I've never reread it. Of all the books, I've probably reread about I, I looked at my old list. I probably reread at least twice about 100 novels. <laughs> and I'm just surprised that I haven't reread Dead Souls. Yeah, well, maybe you're waiting yeah. for the right time. Okay, so after you uh, found that you loved the Magic Mountain, did you did it send you toward the other works of Thomas Mann? Did you just immerse yourself in Death in Venice and other works by Thomas Mann? I did. I read a lot of his stuff, but I have to say that I much prefer his novels, like. Uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Faustus and Boonenbrooks over mm-hmm. his short stories or his Death in Venice. I'm, you know, I'm not a big fan of Death in Venice. I, mm-hmm. you know, but maybe that's something I should reread um, and give another give it another chance. I, I, I highly recommend uh, Dr. Faustus if people loved Magic Mountain. I think the 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 backstory to that just very briefly is fascinating. Um, Thomas Mann, it, it's it's the retelling of the the person who makes a pact with the devil to mm-hmm. be successful in life. Right. And it's, it's a pianist. Um, and the pianist was based on, um, Oh, oh Schoenberg, mm-hmm. Arnold Schoenberg. And, um, his friend in Dr. Faustus is based on Adorno and the two characters. So for the book, 
the descriptions of music are amazing. Thomas Mann was um, a failed uh, music classical music composer. That mm -hmm. was his. That was his big dream. So he knew a lot about music, but he had Adorno and Schoenberg write actual music for the book, mm -hmm. and they would play it. And he wrote about the music in the book. Oh, so it's beautiful. It's right. uh, so I I really recommend Doctor Faustus. And the the scene when the devil appears is so well done. Yeah, the devil <laughs> is cold, cold air. <laughs> yeah, chilly air. So. <laughs> so did you and did you dive into his life story? Were you obsessed with Thomas Mann because of your love for these books? I did. I went to Lübeck, his uh, hometown in northern Germany. Right. And what did you take from that? How did you apply your your knowledge of his biography to your reading of his works? You know, I um, he, his control over his family, his uh, his repressed homosexuality. I mean, I think there's there's so much about his home life that crops up here and there in his his writing. Um, I, I love the story that his his children used to call him the sorcerer mm. because he was so cold. Oh. <laughs> um, and he and he he wrote in his journals that he didn't like to hold babies until his fifth child, Ooh. which is very sad. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to him, his writing was everything. Yeah. Oh. Which is you know you know sort of bittersweet. I mean, right. for readers, it's great. But when you think of a person like that, mm -hmm. and the other story I love is he used to, whenever he wrote a first draft, he used to gather his wife and his children after supper and make them listen to him read his work. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a story. Whenever I hear about a bad parent as a writer, I always think of the Wyndham Lewis story where his wife had said to him, you know, it's almost as if you you don't care anything at all about our children. And he said, Oh, is there more than one? Um, <laughs> and, uh, oh, she, you know, but when you read his works, it's got that cruelty in it. It, yeah. you think of him as being cold blooded and just toward people and, and humanity in general. I don't get that feeling with when I read the magic mountain. I don't no. get the feeling that Thomas Mann is a cold fish. I, I get the feeling that he's he seems kind of magnanimous and broad spirited. Yeah, I mean he's he's aroused by borrowing a pencil from a woman. I mean he yeah. you know the littlest thing is incredibly charged and emotional. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Maybe yeah. he's one of those where he was so sensitive that to protect himself he had to be he had to kind of block himself off in real life and because he if he let himself be as emotional as he could be, it could destroy him. Yeah, I mean, there's a very, it's a very German kind of romantic, romanticism to mm. his writing mm -hmm. that maybe he was incredibly well-read and incredibly erudite. And that the, the line from the, the literary history from Goethe to him is very much continuous and yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think maybe there's there, there's that to be said. Um, the, he very much, when I read him, I feel like there's a national unity of a, a sense of nation behind mm. his writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it yeah, it took him twelve years to write this thing. And mm -hmm. where did it fit into his life and his career? Was it did it make his name, or was it was he already established? 
So he wrote but in Brooks and he on the base I think he he ended up writing Magic Mountain afterwards soon after uh and he won the Nobel Prize and mm-hmm. a lot of people said that so he wrote he won, I believe he won the Nobel Prize before he wrote Dr Faustus but that the Nobel Prize was given to him for Budden Brooks it was such a success mm. um, yeah I mean I recommend Budden Brooks too I mean the the portrait of three generations of family you know you can you can see that that was very influential i think garcia marquez is, you oh, know gives right. a nod to him with like one year, 100 years of solitude mm-hmm. trying to portray multiple generations and right. there's a lot of creepy stuff about what's in the family blood cropping up in a couple generations later that if i again i find very german hmm. so you'd read that <laughs> so, third you'd go magic mountain then dr faustus then buddenbrooks yeah. And I, I mean, some of his, he was, you know, maybe not as political as his brother Heinrich Mann, but at the same time, he was quite political. And you can read some of his short stories as allegories like Mario and the Magician. There's a lot of, right. Yeah. Hit, like Hitler esque mm-hmm. uh, propagandist figures that are brought to life in his short stories. Right. Okay. So, so yeah. let's get back to the Magic Mountain. Okay. I mean, it's really. It might be the quintessential novel of ideas. And it seems like, at least at that period of your life, you were drawn to novels of ideas. But how do you, what do you think of them today? Are you still a fan? Is this the kind of book that you would seek out above all others? Um, I I feel like I'm a bad judge because I'm still a fan. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, I've been meaning to reread the glass bead game yep. for a while. You know, I've read Man Without Qualities and yep. I'm, I'm rereading Infinite Jest. But then, you know, the, the whole idea of novels of ideas, I, I would maybe argue that the Neapolitan novels by Ferrente is a novel of ideas. Mm. Um, right. Or or even like um, 2666 is a novel of ideas, mm-hmm. even though the ideas don't kind of hit you over the head the way like Brothers Karamazov or those kind of books might. Yeah. Well, the novel of ideas, you know, I guess it's whether you want to consider it to be, if it's really a, an examination of friendship and loyalty and betrayal yeah. uh, and romance, you know, that might be one type of novel of ideas. And then the other might, the way I always sort of think of it is taking on the way Saul Bellow would of, well, these mm. are the, the prevailing philosophies of our day. These are the things people are wrestling with or the, the, the thinkers who have written books recently. And I'm going to be addressing those issues in here. And you sort of, it's sort of a, a survey of philosophy and psychology and whatever is currently dominating general intellectual life or intellectual thought. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't mind that the characters are mouthpieces for an author's viewpoint. But I can imagine some people thinking like, well, like in the Magic Mountain, Settembrini and Nafta, these two philosophers that when they speak, they they don't speak like real people. I fully acknowledge that. (laughs) But then a lot of the passages, a lot of the dialogue from like the brothers Karamazov, nobody speaks like that, you know? Right. So, So, okay. So I'm going to, tell you about what I've called the Henry Miller test. I'm not sure if I've ever talked to you about this before. (laughs) But basically, I can remember reading this essay 
Uh-huh. And it was a person who was asked to defend their favorite author. You know, someone was saying, oh, yeah, I think it was maybe Hemingway. Or Actually, part of the story is I'm not sure who the author was. So it was <laughs> uh, the person was saying, you got to read this. It's fantastic. And the person said, well, just tell me what the best passage is. Mm. Show that to me. And the guy who was advocating for this work started looking at it and he said, it just fell apart in front of my eyes. I kept, and then I looked (laughs) for a different passage and, and it fell apart in front of my eyes. And the, the act of having to come up with the best passages made Mm -hmm. him rethink his, his fandom for that author's works. And the reason why I call it the Henry Miller test, but I can't, find this story and i can't remember now if mm-hmm. it was somebody talking about their love for henry miller and that the henry miller was the the, mm-hmm. the work that fell apart in front of their eyes as they were trying to find a good passage that they could hold up that would hold up to scrutiny or i kind of feel like it was a, a an essay by henry miller and that he was talking about hemingway or somebody else and so i call it the henry miller test but it's either something Henry Miller did or something someone else did about Henry Miller. But anyway, I asked you to select five chapters mm-hmm. and I actually want to focus on three of those chapters. I thought five might be too many and I, I skipped over a couple of a couple of them, but maybe we could touch on those at the end. But you put forth some chapters that you thought would best represent the Magic mm-hmm. Mountain. So the first one we're going to talk about is the Baptismal Bowl slash mm-hmm. grandfather in his two forms. So what is happening? This is an early chapter in the book. What is happening here? Mm. So it, it's interesting because the novel starts with our hero, who's mediocre, our mediocre hero, Hans Castorp, mm-hmm. heading up into the Alps to a sanitarium to visit his cousin Joachim, mm-hmm. who is there because he has possibly has tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. And he's been there for, I don't know, a couple of weeks. So, and Hans is supposed to stay for a couple of weeks. And then after we get this image of him heading up to the Alps, we get this flashback mm-hmm. to his childhood where he lost both his parents and his grandfather who had taken him in, I think in the span of a year. And this, I think this chapter, what I love about it is we're introduced to death, mm-hmm. the way death has been introduced to Hans Castorp so early in life. And I just love there are little details that will echo in the rest of the novel. Like the grandfather wears this very stiff suit and it looks uncomfortable, seems uncomfortable. And he he takes to propping his chin up with his hand. Mm. And the boy loves the way the the grandfather does this. And it comes back later in the novel that Hans learns how to, or takes to propping his own chin up mm. with his with his hand. The the two forms is the fa- the grandfather. There's a portrait of the grandfather right. in the house, and it's a elegant, huge painting. This portrait and the boy Hans almost starts to think of the the living grandfather as like the the inferior version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. And again, it's it, it, so Mann being um, very much into classical music and symphonies, 
was fascinated and loved um, light motifs and novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get this image, the idea of this, with, well, isn't it better to have the image, especially since the person may die or deteriorate? And later, when Hans falls in love with this woman at the sanitarium, he um, borrows a portrait that one of the doctors has done of her and like carries it around and gets a an x-ray plate made of her uh, lungs, the black spot on her lungs, and he carries that around. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> I just think this this chapter really kind of sets the lays down the tone for the yeah. rest of the, the book. Oh yeah, it's a beautiful chapter. I mean it's it it's got a real reach into a kind of nostalgia, but not overly sentimental, but just a the details are so precise and and the recollection of his grandfather is so it's so visceral you know i felt like i could really i was really right there with hans and his grandfather mon's realism is held by many critics to be this is the pinnacle of european realism Mm. Uh, you know theorists like george lukash and to them if you're going to write in this realist style this Mm -hmm. is the way to do it yeah what is it doing in the i mean it you have this mediocrity hans kostorp you know that he's headed up the mountain and then you you go deep into this. Do you have a sense of where this is headed? Is it just does it make you see a side of Hans that you wouldn't have seen before? Do you think, oh, actually he's he's more of a thoughtful person than I thought, or he's got a more interesting backstory than I thought? I th- I think you could you you could take it to mean that he he could be successful in life that he has this grandfather who was a, this great role model this positive role model. Or you can take this to mean that he's not going to return to this world. Hmm. That this is like he's kind of leaving behind. The, the, this is the world below. Oh. So the so, hero is going on a journey. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a line. The mediocre, uh, the mediocre hero is going on a journey. <laughs> <laughs> there's a line that, you know, and I think Mon's humor is is overlooked. But th- there's a line that I find very, very funny where he says, uh, in, on page 21 of the the John Woods translation, his father's name was there. This is the bowl, the baptismal bowl that mm, has right. your names. It's like the Stanley Cup with the you winners, the winning team. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So his father's name was there, as was, in fact, his grandfather's and his great-grandfather's. And now that syllable came double, tripled, and quadrupled from the storyteller's mouth, and the boy would lay his head to one side his eyes fixed and full of thought, yet somehow dreamily thoughtless, his lips parted in drowsy devotion, and he would listen to the great, 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 that somber sound of the crypt and buried time, which nevertheless both expressed a reverentially preserved connection of his own life in the present to things now sunk deep below the earth and simultaneously had a curious effect on him, the same effect visible in the look on his face." I mean, the long sentences, once you get used to the rhythm, yeah. uh, are very satisfying. And I enjoyed the translation. You had I confirmed with you which translation I should read, and it was the John Woods translation yeah. that you're reading from, right? Yeah. I mean, I've read the Lowell, Helen Lowell Porter, Porter mm-hmm. um, also, um, and I don't think it's as bad as people make it out to be, but 
the the woods one is is far more it, it is is more readable definitely mm-hmm. okay so let's move on to the next chapter table talk which is i love this chapter it's <laughs> uh this is from section 4 and it's got this beautiful description of a relationship that i thought was funny and really incisive so who are the people in this relationship so this is one of those chapters that I think this is a favorite mm-hmm. of a lot of people who read Magic Mountain is the gossipy cafeteria. I mean, it's a dining room. So so just to give some listeners some backdrop, um, you go up to the sanatorium, you sign up for whatever, two weeks or a month, um, because you have a TB or, or some kind of ailment, and they basically serve you five full meals a day and the rest of the time you're living quote-unquote the horizontal life which is to lie on a balcony in the cold air wrapped up in two wool blankets (laughs) so so, um on the surface it seems just really really strange yeah and have you tried that by the way wrapping myself up in two blankets yeah i have a feeling you've probably tried it i have not (laughs) but the description of yokum his cousin teaching hans to do it and hans being very frustrated trying to do it is is (laughs) is pretty funny and so so but in table talk you're introduced to in the dining hall there are the there's the good russian table and then the bad russian table and then hans's table which has i think one russian woman before this chapter we are introduced to this woman, Madame Shusha, Shusha mm-hmm. who always, you always know when she enters the dining room because she lets the front door slam. And this chapter is, as you saw, this hilarious dynamic between Hans and this very old Russian woman who knows that he's interested in Madame Shusha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's kind of like her high point of the day. It's her thrill to yeah. see this like flirtation because she's an old woman and she's sick. And it, it's a very subtle triangle, the three of them, yeah. the way they, they talk around, right? you know, the attraction. And they're, uh, and they're so, all aware. And, and then it's like they're playing chess with words. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And some people read this to be a, a very good example of, Mon's repression, mm. his his sexuality, and overanalyzing every gesture, right? Because you're you're trying to communicate, but you you can't do it directly. Everything has to be through obfuscation, and then it's does this person understand what I really mean? And and then they say something that kind of puts another spin on it, and you have to show that you know what they mean and it's all sort of it's like this psychological battle or event just to have this basic conversation yeah yeah (laughs) and and if i remember correctly this chapter is on like page 130 i think this is like day three (laughs) (laughs) and i think that's another thing that appealed to me is um i think when i first read this i really wanted time to go slower mm. but i don't know it was something in me I, I just felt like i was i was getting old too quickly yeah um and pan. 
Yeah, and I I think this book really appealed to me the way, and he kind of forgets. That's another theme in this is you sort of forget. There's a beautiful passage he says where he says, "People think that when you're having fun, time flies, but it's actually when you're really bored that yeah. time flies, and when you're having fun, time slows." Mm. Right, and you enjoy it, and I th- I always remember that like that when you're bored, time flies because you don't care about it. Yeah, you... and and you've wasted. You know that's where it comes from. You've wasted your time. There's nothing so, memorable. You got nothing done. You're not going to look back on it fondly. Yeah. Mm. Um. The 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 cousin, uh, and I think this is another reason why I love Magic Mountain is. All the minor characters you can imagine could have been main characters in other novels. Mm-hmm. Like Maybe. the cousin, you, you you don't expect much out of him. He seems like kind of a Ian Forrester would call like a flat character, not round. Mm-hmm. But then, but then he surprises you because he's he has a re, he's like the only person who wants to leave this place. <laughs> he's constantly like badgering the doctor. Can you check me again? Can you check me again? And the doctor's like, "Ah, oh, two more days, one more week, <laughs> two more weeks, one more month." And then at, at one point, I mean, you know, a spoiler alert. He just says, "That's it. I'm going down. I'm I'm leaving." Yeah. And then um, I don't know. If we should say what. Maybe we won't say what happens then. But I I just love. He's the only. It seems like he's the only person who wants to actually get healthy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just up there for years yeah i mean we can say that like he, yeah. you know hans sets out to visit for two weeks and he stays for i think six or eight years yeah so okay so let's turn now to snow chapter now you've mentioned this this chapter on the podcast before i think in one of our christmas episodes right right whoa yeah. i had never read it what a chapter crazy right Oh, you know, are you familiar? Imagine if it was published in like a a standalone, if it was published in the New Yorker. People would be writing in and being like, who wrote this? Yeah, that's the thing. If you are you familiar with the term bottle episode? No series. So they call this when you have a television series, they -hmm. would call a bottle episode, you know, say they were doing 22 episodes in a season or something and they were one short. And so they would. They would make a show cheaply and they would use a small cast and a limited set and maybe a script that had to be mm-hmm. done at the last minute. And, and it would be separate and apart from the main storyline, you know, so mm-hmm. it could just be inserted wherever it needed to be in the schedule. And what they would do right. then is they would go deep into one or two characters doing something limited, some small and isolated journey or some deep reflection or some backstory or they they do something like that usually not even backstory because they use they would reuse a set that they already had but they would give them a little problem to solve and then the whole episode would take place in that bottle and i kind of felt like that with this chapter <laughs> uh that it sort of could stand apart yeah it just blew me away it's the chapter that a lot of people you may not remember much other than, not you, but most people may not remember much other than like he, he ended up staying for a long time, but they they remember Snow. Mm-hmm. They remember that strange chapter where he kind of like 
thinks he's spending hours and it's like 10 minutes have passed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he goes through. Okay. So let's, let's talk about what happens. So he's, so where is he in his overall journey? How's he come to view his stay at the sanitarium? You know, he, he's almost like lost the will to, you know, to leave to change his life. Yeah. 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 And he's, I think at this point, he's met Setembrini, mm-hmm. but he hasn't met NAFTA. That's the other thing um, Mon does really well is that he introduces characters very late and you never feel, you almost feel, it, it energizes the mm. book because right. it's so long and to have new characters suddenly appear. So they, there's a beautiful, well, the phrasing for daydreaming, he calls it playing king. Mm. He daydreams a lot, but in this chapter, he's almost kind of forced to daydream. Yeah. Because you almost feel like he might die. It's kind of hallucinatory. Um, There's sort of a a Jack London aspect to it that it's, you know, he goes out there and he, you almost feel like he has a death wish or he's, he's trying to prove, he's trying to prove something to himself. Or, I mean, I love that he, he views his athleticism. You know, first he sort of says, well, I'm not a sportsman. And mm-hmm. then when the storm is coming on, he thinks a sportsman would be cautious here and go inside. So it's it's almost like <laughs> on the one hand, he's not equipped to be out there, you know, tramping through the snow and, and doing this journey. But on the other hand, he thinks of himself as sort of he could be more reckless than that or he could be. It's a test of his will as much as a test of his physical abilities or physical endurance yeah i mean it's the skiing the details are perfect like he says like long skis make it inconvenient to press your back against the shed Mm. i mean it's stuff like that where he says something like well my reaction is a typical reaction of anybody in a snowstorm (laughs) i mean it's like (laughs) (laughs) the whole idea of health uh, hale and being hardy and facing the elements, uh, it's kind of turned on its head here because here is somebody, a young, strong person, and he's just kind of reduced to his mind. Hmm. I mean, that's what, that's kind yeah. of what the sanitarium, one of the positives, if you can think of it, is that everyone is extremely well. They're great conversationalists. <laughs> they're, they're like, you know, all they have is their minds, yeah. you know. That's so interesting that you said that, because I've been staring at this sentence that I wrote down in my notes here, and it was, I found myself caring desperately for him, then just getting swept away by the vision, and I just didn't want the writing to stop. Mm, you know, it's yeah. almost like you go through this Jack London thing where you're you're thinking, oh, I can't wait until he gets somewhere warm, or oh, I really hope he doesn't freeze to death out here, and you feel the like you do when you read stories of people on a sh- shipwreck or in a some kind of terrible storm. And this one, the description of the snow is so beautiful, but also yeah. you feel the the menace of it and the, the danger. But then it kind of, for me, it kind of flipped and I almost stopped caring about his physical body. And I was yeah. just riding along with his mind as it was engaged in these sort of hallucinatory visions it's to the extreme in this chapter but throughout the book there are moments where people are kind of urged to rationalize Mm. and urged to to make sense of something just using your mind 
you know, no matter the way you feel like, you know, little things like the doctors are creepy, totally creepy in this book. Um, they take your temperature using what they call a silent sister. It's a thermometer without markings. Hmm. And, you know, <laughs> you, you just wonder, like they say that they don't want to, that they don't want the patients to take their own temperature, oh, right. which just by itself is yeah. creepy. Well, it makes you think they're just <laughs> trying to trap them there. Yeah. yeah. And one doctor is very skeptical of the other, but the two of them are both incredibly strange. Mm. You instantly, I think that you feel it in your gut. Like you just fear whenever they evaluate the the patients. And then there's this moment where you wonder what they're going to say. And they always say, you're still sick. You have to stay. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but they do it. I mean, from the passages that I read, they do yeah. it in a way that makes you think that it's reasonable and, and not that yeah. they're the jailers, but that right. they're just sort of recommending it, but it's up to you and that you ultimately conclude, oh yeah, it, it'd be only prudent to just continue to stay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the, <laughs> the, the real backstory is that um, to, to his idea of this is that his wife, Maria, had TB and she stayed at a sanitarium for one month. Hmm. And afterwards, they asked her to stay longer, and she said no way and left. Hmm. And so that that stayed in his head, and that germinated, and that became the Magic Mountain. Oh right, yeah, the idea that they had wanted her to stay even longer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and what it what kind of person? I'm sure he was imagining. Well, what sort of person would just keep staying, and they'd keep yeah. asking and and recommending, and he would not be able to escape the grip yeah. of it escape and uh what happens after this kind of claustrophobia is such a theme in this book and in snow it i find it fascinating that the claustrophobia of the snow the escape is this bizarre paradise yeah. where <laughs> there are these there are these witches dismembering a child <laughs> i mean i i don't know about you but this just comes out of almost comes out of nowhere. <laughs> I, know. I was like, yeah. who wrote this? I, I mean, it's, the first time I read it, I was just like, what? What is this? Well, it's like a, a fever. It's not yeah. it's not so much a mirage as like a, a wild fever dream. Oh, it's so creepy. Yeah. Uh, but yet it's really compelling to read. Yeah. It's like the, he could see the pale blonde hair smeared with blood. I think there are a lot of moments in his fiction that read like German bedtime stories. Hmm. There's there's something about the fairy tale quality. Yeah. Uh, I mean, creepy and disturbing, but. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So is snow basically the pinnacle? Is there anything in Thomas Mann that's better than this? I I, I really like the duel. I didn't, I didn't uh, there's a chapter where, the two philosophers who are kind of vying to influence Hans Castorp, they decide to have a duel because they're mm. one of them offends the other. Uh -huh. I think that's a great chapter. Um, and Hans, Hans is trying to talk them out of the duel. Right. Um, and then there's also a chapter called Walpurgis Night, yeah. which is um, the costume ball where he finally makes a move on Madame Shusha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I think he borrows her pencil <laughs> or returns her pencil. It's very, you know, <laughs> right. It's little, 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 uh, moments of flirtation. Okay. So what else should we say about the magic mountain before we wrap this up? I, you know, um, the Germans leave it to the Germans. They made a, uh, a mini series TV show. Mm -hmm. And I actually loved it. Oh, okay. (laughs) I recommend that as well. Six episodes of it. I think, you know, I think the book can be, um, read at least twice. Mm-hmm. It can almost be read slowly. I mean, I used to not think that for the first for the first read. I, I was I would say that you have to read it in two three weeks. But n- now, as I get older, I think you can read it slowly. Okay, well, let's leave things there. Uh, it's a good way to wrap up our two hundredth episode with a little snow, a little Christmas in this holiday season, and a little tribute to friendship. I think maybe I'll go watch the Shawshank Redemption now. I'd- Call my old high school friend. (laughs) Hey, you know that movie you were telling me about? (laughs) Uh, Mike, as always, thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature think we're done for the year? I think not. We have too much to cover, and we're having too good of a time. 200 episodes, and we're just getting started. We'll do at least one more, hopefully. And if we're going to do one, then why not a hundred? Why not a thousand? It's the spirit of giving. We're grateful to you for listening, and to those of you who've helped the show, and those of you in the car sleeping while someone else listens. I like you, too. I guess you can't hear me, but maybe your partner can tell you after you wake up. Honey, Jack Wilson mentioned you. It was a beautiful tribute, or at least I think it was beautiful. It was a little hard to hear over your snores. Ah, Be a good friend to everyone you can. (laughs) Does that make sense? Be a good friend to everyone you can be a good friend to. And enjoy your holidays, and thank you for helping us reach the Magic Mountain of 200 episodes. Maybe we'll stay up here for a while, or maybe we'll come down in a landslide, or maybe we'll figure out another path. But we will do it with love in our hearts and perspicacity in our vision. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>